So we're going to step into a psalm this morning. You know we're in this long journey through the book of Psalms. And this morning we step into Psalm 26. And we're stepping into a psalm that I think, if you're like me, is going to sound a bit odd. Read through this psalm multiple times. And the longer I read it, the odder it sounded. But I think when you get behind it and you unpack it, all that oddness is actually have something to say to you and me right where we live today. So I'm looking forward to see how we unpack it and kind of grab at some application, maybe unexpected. So here we go. If you have a Bible with you, we're going to jump right in without further ado. Psalm 26, a Psalm of David. I'm reading out the New International Version. If you want to follow along, uh, these 12 verses, I think are going to have something to say to us today. Psalm 26, David begins. Verse 1, vindicate me, Lord, for I have led a blameless life. I have trusted in the Lord and have not faltered. Test me, Lord, and try me. Examine my heart and my mind. For I have always been mindful of your unfailing love and have lived in reliance on your faithfulness. I do not sit with the deceitful, nor do I associate with hypocrites. I abhor the assembly of evildoers and refuse to sit with the wicked. I wash my hands in innocence. And I go about your altar, Lord, proclaiming aloud your praise and telling of all your wonderful deeds. Lord, I love the house where you live, the place where your glory dwells. Do not take away my soul along with sinners, my life with those who are bloodthirsty and whose hands are wicked schemes, whose right hands are full of bribes. I lead a blameless life. Deliver me and be merciful to me. My feet stand on level ground in the great congregation. I will praise the Lord. Now, the first word of the psalm tells us what's going on. I mean, it's the heartbeat of the psalm. David cries out, vindicate me, Lord. The word in the Hebrew behind this actually is judge. It's God make a judgment, but it's a call for a judgment of innocence that the judge would call out in the courtroom, you are innocent. Now, we don't know exactly the context behind Psalm 26, why David would be asking God for vindication. But we do know there's a verbal link here back to a psalm we looked at several weeks ago, Psalm 17. Psalm 17 is where David asks something very similar of God as he launches into that prayer. Here it is, Psalm 17, verse 1 and 2. Here's how he starts the prayer. Hear me, Lord, my plea is just. Listen to my cry. Let my vindication come from you. What we know about Psalm 17 is that David is surrounded by enemies. And these enemies were accusing him of falsehoods. And David here comes to God and says, God, do not let my enemies accuse me in public. Would you vindicate me in public and declare my innocence? Don't you let me be embarrassed by my enemies. Declare me innocent. And so we know he's surrounded with enemies, those who are accusing him of all kinds of falsehoods and all kinds of evil. We don't have that kind of clarity in Psalm 26. So we're not exactly, we can't know for sure what is being claimed uh, uh, against David. But I think because of the verbal links, we can be confident that David is surrounded by evil people who are trying to, at best, embarrass him, at worst, publicly shame him as the king of Israel. And so David cries out, vindicate me, declare me innocent in front of your people. 
Now, what gets odd is what comes next. See, I don't think that's the odd piece of the psalm. I got no problem asking God for vindication, right? Like, I think that's within the realm of something maybe we all would pray at different times. It's that next piece that gets me when he says, for I have led a blameless life. Does that not strike you as a bit odd? Is that something you can pray? You ever prayed, God, I am blameless. Now give me this. No, only the arrogant pray that way. Like, who prays that way in their right mind? I can't pray that. And that seems such an odd thing to pray. And yet, general principle in biblical interpretation is, let the Bible interpret itself. And what we have here in Psalm 26 is what would appear to be a claim to perfection. When I hear the phrase blameless life, immediately I think he's claiming sinlessness or some type of perfection. And I think I can't go there. But interestingly, when you actually begin to unpack and begin to look at the rest of the psalm, David actually explains what he means by the phrase blameless life. David's not claiming perfection. A blameless life actually is defined by something else, not by perfection, but by some of these things. Check out how he continues. So if we just, I want to highlight what comes next. He says, I have trusted in the Lord and have not faltered. I have always been mindful of your unfailing love and have lived in reliance on your faithfulness. David here isn't declaring, I'm perfect. Vindicate me because I'm perfect. He says, vindicate me. You declare me innocent because you know I keep trusting in you. I keep trusting in you. Not that I've got it worked out. Not that I'm perfect. Actually, I know that I need you. So I'm asking you to help me because I'm leaning in on this dependence that I have in you because I know I'm not the center of the universe. I know I don't control everything. I know that I am frail. So God, I need you to vindicate me. See, to live a blameless life isn't to live perfect. It's to live in dependence on God because you know you're not going to do it any other way. So here's how one scholar defines, uh, describes what's going on here. I love this. David's claim to have led a blameless life is not an assertion of sinless perfection. It's rather a claim to possess the appropriate attitude of fear of God, the awareness of one's sinfulness, and absolute dependence on divine mercy. That's the shape of a blameless life. You actually know that you do mess up. You know that you can't keep walking one foot after another, particularly in hard moments without God. A blameless life is one defined by dependence on God, not sinless perfection. And it's right there as he describes what a blameless life actually looks like. The first thing he says is, I trust in the Lord, not himself. And so we begin to get we begin to get perspective on exactly how David understands himself and where this call for vindication is coming from. Interestingly, David, as he leans in on this dependence on God, he actually uses that Hebrew word again that we keep seeing come up week after week after week. As he depends on God, as he trusts in God, he knows I am rooted. I am always mindful of this Hebrew word because this Hebrew word is one of the most used words to define God. I feel like at this point I could quiz you, but I won't. No one needs to. It won't need an awkward moment. It's Hesed. Just so everyone knows, George said it. He knew it. Man, George. Sometimes I don't know if you're saying amen because it's just you like you have moments in the morning. You just say amen or it's a really great point. All right. It's Hesed. 
This is the word hesed. It's the Hebrew word, one of the most used words to describe who God is. And it's a word that means covenant love. It means God's not going to let go of you. Even when you mess up, he doesn't give up on you. Now, there are a lot of ways of defining hesed. This week, I just happened to just stumble into another definition of hesed that I really like. Got to share it with you. Here it is. One scholar says this. So there's the Hebrew, hesed. You read it backwards. Um, Here it is. Hesed describes the fierce loyalty and commitment that marks God's loyalty to his covenant relationship with his people. What I loved about the definition is fierce loyalty. God will fight for his people. He's not just passive. He doesn't sit around hoping you do, you do good. No, he knows we're all going to mess up and he doesn't give up. It's a fierce loyalty. And so as David comes to God asking that, God, would you justify me? Would you declare me innocent? Vindicate me? He's coming depending on God's hesed. He's always mindful God is faithful. This is a covenant love. God doesn't give up. It's a fierce loyalty. And what we know is because we know these other prayers David has written. Part of that, David knows he's messed up and he's in deep need of God's forgiveness. I want to take you back to what we just read last week. Remember, David here writes about a blameless life. A blameless life, right? In in Psalm 26. And yet just last week in Psalm 25, he talks about the deep forgiveness he needs from God. Check it out. Psalm 25, 6 and 7. So he he just has written this psalm and then right on the cusp he's talking about a blameless life. It's because these two go together. He says this, verse 6, Psalm 25. Remember, Lord, your great mercy and hesed, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth and my rebellious ways. According to your hesed, remember me, for you, Lord, are good. So let me summarize this real quick. Let me summarize it this way. A blameless life is not a life that is perfect. It's one that moves forward in the reality of God's unfailing love and his forgiveness. David isn't asking God to vindicate him because he's got a perfect record. He asked God to vindicate him because he knows God's the only one that can do it. And even when he sins, God holds on. And David is going to move forward in that reality. So that's, what's, that's, that's the layer underneath what we would just assume means perfect. It doesn't mean perfect at all. It means dependence on God's hesed, his covenant love. Okay, so, so with that said, I don't want us to have the idea, though, that a blameless life has no moral distinctions. A blameless life involves moral aspects. And David includes two kinds here in Psalm 26. So let's unpack them real quick. There's the positive side of this. The positive side is this. People who live a blameless life before God, they like going to church and they like being in God's presence. At least that's the, that's the general disposition of their spirit. They want to be in church, and they want to be in God's presence. Check it out. Here it is. David describes his blameless life this way. This is the moral dimension of what he's saying. Verse 8 and 12. Lord, I love the house where you live, the place where your glory dwells. My feet stand on level ground in the great congregation. I will praise the Lord. David doesn't have some some idea that I just sit at home and praise God all the time, and that's just good enough. For David, the fullest expression of praising God is, I'm going to go be with God's people. Now, the way we say it is, you go to church. 
But that's what David's dealing with. And so basically, David's saying, you know the kind of person I am. I am not perfect. I depend on you. But I do want to be with you. And I do go to church. That's the positive side. There's a negative side to what it means to be a blame, to live a blameless life. And that is, he describes it this way. He says, I do not sit with the deceitful, nor do I associate with the hypocrites. I abhor the assembly of evildoers, and I refuse to sit with the wicked, in whose hands are wicked schemes, whose right hands are full of bribes. In short, evil people, people that are wicked, the kind of people described here by David, the people that he doesn't hang out with and then become like them, these are the kind of people that think that they do no wrong. These are the people that do what they want, when they want to do it, however they want to do it. We've got these people all around us. These are people that hurt other people. These are people that leverage power to hurt people, to intimidate people. These are the kind of people we're talking about. These are people that can't be trusted. David says, I'm not like them. I don't hang out with them. Interestingly, David is echoing the first verses of the whole book of Psalms. Maybe you remember a long time ago, we studied Psalm 1. Psalm 1, the whole book of Psalms launches with, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, stand in the way that sinners take, sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord. You see, a blameless life isn't that you do it all perfect. It's not that you don't mess up, but you don't settle in. You don't settle in into a life that is dishonest, full of greed and power. And you don't become really, really great friends with those people. Because when you do, you have a way of becoming like them. And the psalmist begins, I don't, blessed is the person who doesn't do that. David in Psalm 26 says, I live a blameless life. And listen, God, yes, I mess up. I depend on you. But listen, my best friends aren't those who are evil and I have not become like them. And so that's, why, that's the moral dimension of what it means to live a blameless life. Now, you might wonder, like, could you name the people? Like, could we name them? Can we, and I don't mean literally, I'm about to drop names. Some of you are like, I hope he doesn't call my name. I hope he doesn't call my name. Like, yeah. Um, uh, like, I say Mark. That'd be really weird if I said Mark. Like, don't hang out with Mark. Like, that'd be really weird. Um, yeah, it wouldn't be truthful, would it? It wouldn't be truthful. Touche. <laughs> Touche. Okay. All right. All right. I lost my train of thought. I've got to bring it back to the station. Where were we? All right. So if we had to name these kind of people, here's the thing. We do have lists in the Bible. Sometimes we do find lists of the kind of people that actually will not be part of the kingdom of God, that are not part of God's people. And I think one of the best lists is one that Paul gives us. By inspiration, Paul writes this list. 1 Corinthians, check it out. He, he gives, makes it very clear. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Uh, we'll read this out of the New Living Translation. He says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols, who commit adultery, are male prostitutes, who practice homosexuality, or are thieves or greedy people or drunkards or are abusive or cheat people. Well, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. It's not that we at times don't mess up on these areas, in some of these areas, Right? But if you have settled into the kind of life that is defined by those things, if you, your life has settled into the kind of person that cheats people, you're not, you, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. That's the moral dimension here. So the call is to live a blameless life. Don't go be best friends with those people because you will become like them. 
So let me summarize everything this way. Let me just drop into a summary of, I think, what's happening in Psalm 26. I think if I had to, I'm not trying to do better than God's Word, but I think if we said it in the way we'd say it today, I think this is what's happening in Psalm 26. I think David is saying this. I don't hang out with evil people or do what they do. I keep trusting in you and your unfailing love even when I fail. Declare me innocent and don't let my enemies keep falsely accusing me. I think that's the prayer. And in that way, I think we can pray it. But I think until we get under that layer of what a blameless life looks like, I think it's a really, I think it becomes really difficult to pray that prayer on the surface. But if you've got any problems with anyone in your life, maybe falsely accused, man, this is a prayer you could pick up. This is a prayer you could pick up. That's part of the reason we're picking up the Psalms, is they give us language to pray to God. But with that said, let's drop into some application. I think there are a couple things we can say about what this means for your life and mine. One of them is a bit theological, but man, I think it's too, we, we can't miss it. It's real simple. I'm sure you've heard it for years, but I don't want us to miss it. Okay, so the first one is this, and, and we don't have a slide for my like summary of the application. I'm going to kind of walk through it with some slides. I think the first thing, the simple thing, is Psalm 26 reminds us of the gospel. It literally reminds us of the good news of Jesus. Let me come at it this way. We were created for God. And I think that's an essential point to understand. St. Augustine said it this way. So like 1,500 years ago, this great theologian of the church said this real famous statement from him. You have made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. Right? And so the problem is, we were created to rest with God, but in our sin and our rebellion, thinking that we are God, thinking that we know what is right all the time, we can do what we want, when we want it, when we, when we, when we, um, when we move in, in that. You know, we have all rebelled to God, and so we all find ourselves restless. At some level, none of us will get rid of restlessness. I don't care how much sleep you get, how good your diet is, or how much medicine you take. There is something about the human life that will never find rest until you are with God in his fullness. And so this is what Augustine gets at. But the problem is, right, that we've rebelled. So how do you get to be with God? We are the guilty ones. We need someone to declare us innocent. The problem is we're not innocent. Isn't this the problem? This is the fundamental problem that one day in eternity everyone will see. We have a hard time in this world because many are blinded to it. The problem is, is that we sure do need someone to declare us innocent. This is where the gospel comes in. Jesus went to the cross to pay for our sins. He said, I will take your rebellion and I will take all the punishment due you. I will take it on. And then I will give you my righteousness and my perfect obedience. I'm going to lay that on top of you. I will impute it to you. So when God looks at you, you are innocent. That's the good news of Jesus. The Apostle Paul says it this way, really concisely. Here it is, Romans 8.1. So now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. If you are in Christ, if you are with Jesus, you never come to your deathbed and said, I hope I did enough. The answer will always be, no, you didn't. You never did enough. But by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, you've already been vindicated. And so you take your last breath with the assurance that you will be with Christ. Now that is good news. And to whatever extent we don't feel it 
and that does not excite us, that's a heart problem we have in a world that is so hard to see that reality. Don't worry. In a hundred years, assuming we're Christians, we'll see it for what it is. And we will be joyful. And we will sing about it and talk about it. And we will be very happy. So that's the reality we're dealing with. It's just a simple message of the gospel here in Psalm 26. We can cry out to God for vindication because we have it in Jesus. All right, so the second application gets, gets more down on the ground, I think, where we live um, day to day in our struggles. It is this. Do not give up trying to obey God. Don't give up trying to obey God. Have you ever felt like trying to obey God is tough? Yeah. It's like parenting. You ever wanted to give up parenting? Yeah. Yeah. I came to church early. I gave up on parenting. This morning, literally. I left early. said, I'm done. Now you like, I'm a pastor. I got to go to church early. I just gave up. Just gave up. You ever feel that way that it's just hard to obey God? Sometimes you just want to eat the whole bag of M&Ms. Like, why, why not? Today's the day. That might be my struggle, not your struggle. But you get it. It's hard to keep obeying God day in and day out. Sometimes you just want to give up on it. Right? You just want to gossip. You just want to lash out. I think the call of Psalm 26 as it relates to a blameless life is we don't give up. We keep trying. We fail. We ask forgiveness. And we keep trying. One of my favorite authors, C.S. Lewis, has something to say about this. It's actually in a chapter on sexual morality. But this section of this chapter is so broad in its application, I had to read it. So here it is. C.S. Lewis has something to say about it. I've underlined what I think is really core. But take a look. It's one of my favorite passages in the book. When I think about the... I don't even know what that says. Purity. So I, I copy and pasted this from Kindle. It appears there's a code problem in my Kindle. Obviously, I don't proofread these things. I trusted Amazon. Okay. All right. Uh, so when I think about the... about We'll just call it purity. Indeed, be sure that perfect chastity like perfect charity will not be attained by merely human efforts. You must ask for God's help. Even when you have done so, it may seem to you for a long time that no help or less help than you need is being given. Never mind. After each failure, ask forgiveness, pick yourself up, and try again. Very often, what God first helps us towards is not the virtue itself, but it's this power of always trying again. For however important chastity, of course, or truthfulness or any other virtue may be, this process trains us in habits of the soul, which are more important still. It cures our illusions about ourselves and teaches us to depend on God. We learn on the one hand that we cannot trust ourselves, even in the best moments. And on the other, that we need not despair even in our worst, for our failures are forgiven. I love this. The only fatal thing is to sit down content with anything less than perfection. Listen, you're not going to reach perfection. I'm not going to reach it either. But I tell you what, I know what it feels like to be tempted to just settle in and give up. And just move into that secret sin. To just give in to that gossip. To give in to that lashing out. It just feels better, doesn't it? Lewis says, no, you keep trying. You fail, but what you learn in the process of failing, forgiveness, try again. What you learn is not just how to learn any virtue. 
You're actually learning to trust God in the process. Pick your sin or the virtue you're trying to figure out, right? You're trying to be patient, and then something happens in your home, and you blow up, and you're like, oh, man, I failed today. And you get to the point maybe where you say, I'm done with trying so much. Like, I just need to lay down the law, and I'm going to yell whenever I want. No. You say, I'm going to try again. I'm going to ask forgiveness. I'm going to try again. I'm going to try again. I'm going to try again. And along the way, you just learned how to trust God. That is what Lewis said is key. Because the fatal mistake is to become complacent and actually not care about what God says. That's the place you're in most danger. Not failing. Failing and trying again is not the problem. It's not even trying that becomes the problem. You can't learn to ride a bike if you never get on the seat. But you will eventually learn to ride if you fall and get back up, fall and get back up, fall and get back up. Here's the way I want to summarize Lewis, and I want to be really clear. I do not think I am better than Lewis. I think Lewis takes me every day. I'm just trying to say it concisely, real quick. Here's what I think we got going on. The thing about trying to obey God, failing, asking forgiveness, and trying again, is that we're learning the essential truth of a blameless life. We depend on God for everything. The most dangerous thing is to stop trying and get comfortable in our sins. And so you and I got to be thinking on, about this. Has, have we become comfortable in any of our sins? So much so that we don't even try anymore. It's a good thing to be convicted. It's a great thing to keep trying. And we keep asking forgiveness. So I thought as I was walking through this and moving to this place of application at the psalm, knowing my own struggles, my own sense of failure constantly, every day I feel like I have failed at something. And I thought, well, what would this look like? Like, what could you and I do to help train us into the world of a blameless life? Not a perfect life, but a blameless life. One where I try, I fail, I ask forgiveness, and I try again. Like, how do I move in that? And I thought, well, I guess I'm going to have to try something hard each day. Like, really hard. It's going to take some work. Like, when I want to get the last word in an argument. And I have to keep my mouth shut. Let me use another example for you. I know I overuse it, but I'm telling you, y'all, like, something in me rages when it happens. Instead of Old Farm, let me use Jackson Street. Just this week, I'm driving down Jackson a couple times, and man, they're driving slow. There are no cops around. There's no reason to go slow. And I'm not saying they're going the speed limit, which can be very difficult as well. But I'm saying they're going under the speed limit. And, and I'm telling you, you know, I've preached this so many times. I am convicted. I am convicted. I know I should be patient. Back off. But this week I got right up on that bumper and then they did nothing. So I moved my car into the other lane to hoping they'd be looking in the rearview mirror knowing someone's frustrated seeing, are you going slow because you're just slow or is there someone else slow? It was them. They were the only ones slow. And do you think they did anything? They didn't do anything. And I'm sitting there angry. I'm like, oh, I failed again. I mean, literally, I'm like, I failed again. Where is my patience? I'm the pastor. I'm supposed to be perfect. You know, Lord knows I'm not perfect. Literally, the Lord knows I'm not perfect. But I think in this, this is so simple. I'm talking about a 10 second difference. I failed. So what did I do? I backed off. And I drove 20 miles an hour. And I was like, Lord, I'm sorry. Like, that's an easy example. I mean, it, got in, it gets into my bones. 
Uh, and I had to talk to George afterwards. I mean, I had to call him and say, George, I need you to drive faster next time. But, uh, yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, so here you go. Seriously, so here's the next step. Like, seriously, so here's where I want us to go. It's right here. Just do something hard for God every day. Do you know the assumption I'm making? Maybe it's just not if, but when you fail, would you ask forgiveness and just try it again? So you may have something hard in your life and you want to get back at somebody. Maybe what you need to do is just keep your mouth shut that day. And maybe you then gossip and you're like, crap, like, can I say crap? Sorry. It's like we're, it's like we're having coffee now. So just in case you didn't know, I would say crap if we were having coffee. I failed. I'm sorry. I'm going to try again. You say, oh, no. Um, <laughs> oh, no. Um, and, and, you, and, and then what you do is you say, I'm going to, but I know that's wrong. God, I'm sorry. And you try again tomorrow. The goal is don't come, become complacent and comfortable with whatever sin you might be dealing with. So seriously, for the rest of the day, whatever you might be struggling with, try, try to do it. Whatever is hard, you try to do it. And if you fail, you just ask forgiveness and you keep trying. Don't you give up. The problem is not in the trying and failing and forgiveness. It's when you become so complacent that you go from walking with evil to sitting with evil and you've just settled in. Let's not do that. Let's pray. Father, today we're going to move and try to do hard things. This is the way of a blameless life. And we know we are declared innocent because of Jesus and so we are grateful for forgiveness. And I just pray we would feel that. So help us. Help us to move as people who are moving more and more in the way of Christ. And when we fail, we will ask you for forgiveness and we'll keep trying. So would you give us a conviction deep in our souls to move more and more like Jesus. That we would never be settled with anything less. And so we need that help. Thank you for your word that helps shape our thinking and go with us into the rest of today and this week. And you give us just what we need each day. We pray that under him who is perfect and has given us his righteousness, Jesus. Together we say, amen.